Welcome, everybody, to Ghouls in the House. I am Natalie Latovsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And we're back yet again to look at a pair of films that have some thematic and location-based connections. And I was really looking forward to this one. We were watching the main film we're talking about because I was really enjoying it. But this, this episode has pretty much become the episode where Arnold tells you about two movies he doesn't like really all that much. <laughs> but we'll explain why. But first up, we got a couple things that we wanted to cover uh, at the top of the episode. This is in response to the previous episode where we talked about, among other things, The Fog. And one of our longtime uh, listeners and friends online, Manuel, wrote me some of his thoughts about The Fog, and I really wanted to share them. One was a response to what we talked about, about Father Malone. He said he guesses Father Malone is an Anglican or Episcopal priest. They can marry, not only that, but a married Anglican priest can convert to Roman Catholicism and be accepted into the Catholic priesthood while married. Also, as Natalie noted, there have been cases of men being married with children, then later in life entering the priesthood. And although I know it doesn't necessarily apply what the real world is in relation to the film, I it's did... A, it's a good enough guess. I did look up and, and did not know, because it's not something that ever I think about, is that the famous church that is the, I think, Sierra Madre, the church that's the location in the fog, among many other films, is in fact an Episcopal church. So I guess if anybody knew that church, they'd recognize that, and they wouldn't have the problems that we had with Father Malone because they'd think, "Ah, hey, he's Episcopal." So yeah, and you were saying maybe if you knew more about it, that like the the vestments and the altar cloths and the way it's set up, it's like if that's an Episcopal church, then maybe you're supposed to read that as Episcopal, except we just read it as church. Well, another thing, I I don't have it in front of me, but I believe Manuel also said there wasn't anything particularly visual about the church that would really define it. So, but anyway, there's that. But the thing I really liked that Manuel shared with us was his own thoughts about Tom Atkins. So I'm just going to read it to you. Nick Castle, Tom Atkins, is not just a big slab of brisket who's inexplicably irresistible to women half his age. He's a damn fast worker. When Elizabeth climbs into his truck, it's already past midnight. I think Stevie on the radio says it's nine past. The ghost comes a-knocking at Nick's door just before 1 a.m. That means in the space of 50 minutes, Nick picks up a girl he's never met before, takes her home, gets her willingly into bed, and is cuddling in post-coital afterglow conversation, looking at her drawings, and getting a little character backstory and her name. And no, I'd never thought to map the timing of that particular sequence. And we talked about how this movie really does treat time as if it's real time. Um, Like that things move in real time in the fog. So yeah, I don't know why either of us... I think maybe because we were just too busy drawing comparisons between Halloween 3 and the fog and Tom Atkins and his lady-killing skills. Nick, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Is it always like this? It's always different. So our connective tissue here, our thread between our two films, is that they're both based in Louisiana. So they're both Southern Gothic in their storytelling. They're both sort of a Bayou set films. Um, They were both filmed, at least in part, in Louisiana as well. So they have that connection. After that, I think it diverges a bit. Well, they're drastically different in some respects, but they have some other connections that just came up as we watched. Basically, you picked the main one, which is Skeleton Key from 2005. By all accounts, depending on who you read online, it is either a not-all-that-successful movie or one that some people consider sort of a forgotten 
or overlooked 21st century building called classic, which it very well may be as time passes, because there's so much about it stylistically that I still say works really well. And then as we were trying to think of something to pair it with, it suddenly occurred to me, of course, Lucio Fulci's The Beyond from 1981, the middle chapter in his three-chapter Gates of Hell trilogy. That's probably only the second time in my life I've seen that movie all the way through. It's a flip-flop because I'd only seen Skeleton Key once before. So it was my second viewing and your first. And it was also my first viewing of The Beyond and your second. The Beyond is one of the infamous video nasties. One of a series, a long list of films that had run afoul of UK censorship. Some of them were actually prosecuted successfully. Some of them were not. The Beyond is actually one of the ones that was on the infamous list, but was not prosecuted or not successfully anyway. And uh, I even have notes in front of me, also known as the Seven Doors of Death, because anybody that's a fan of this stuff going back into the VHS days knows that all these Italian movies come with 57 different titles. The Beyond originally passed with two minutes cut in 1987 over there and was finally re-released uncut in 2001. But it's a video nasty. And for anybody that knows what that means, you certainly can expect gore galore and some pretty visceral stuff in place of storytelling. Although some of those movies on the list are actually damn good movies. This one, maybe not so much. But let's dial it back and talk about our, uh, our main film for the episode, Skeleton Key. You're not from the South. You won't understand. That room up there? You just don't go in and throw things out of a room like that. You leave them just where you found them. The house is theirs just as much as ours. The house is whose? Whose things are in that room? One of the reasons I wanted to watch this movie is because, number one, I'd only seen it once and I had kind of these vague recollections of what it was and what sort of the ambiance of it was. And obviously I remembered the plot, which if you haven't seen it, I should mention that we will, on both of these, talk our way through the entire plot of the movie. We're going to tell you the full endings of both because we have to talk about the endings. So we really do. So we have to see, you have to see them. Spoiler alert, if that matters for you, we're going to talk about the endings of these films. So I had remembered sort of all the beats of the movie, but it'd been a while since I'd even seen it that first time. I was really surprised that you hadn't seen it simply because you and I both, I think, really love gothic storytelling in general, but also like Southern gothic storytelling and it's so it was also, like these little gaps for both of us. It's also a story based in a house, like one of our standard things we both love, spending time in a weird or haunted house, which is a great, another great house with the really cool key that opens all the doors, hence the title. And it's like, yeah, so I, I'm kind of surprised. This actually came out just around the time we were wrapping up working on Zombie Mania. There aren't any zombies, so we would have discounted it, but I'm surprised I didn't notice it. I mean, you could make the zombie argument kind of, but not really, sort of. Mm. We'll get there. In a way. In a way. I think this falls under the side of body possession rather than mm, rather than zombie. I'm with you. Yeah. But, it, but I, I, I think it feels that way because there's so much ritual involved yeah. in it. And of course, it's a strong, well, I would say voodoo, but not. It's a strong hoodoo movie, not voodoo. We'll get to that. 
cast is actually very limited. And it was one of the things initially that I really, I mean, there are a lot of things about this movie I really, really enjoyed. In fact, I thought until the last five minutes or so that I had found a movie I was going to consider a favorite or some a movie that I might want to revisit and something I could really be enthusiastic about. I was looking forward to doing the episode about it. And then the ending happened. And I still want to talk about it because I figured after mulling it over, it also occurred to me, hell, the rest of the movie was great. It's it's still uh, stylistically a beautiful piece of work. Everybody in it is great. Kate Hudson leads the cast, and she's wonderful. She's an incredibly sympathetic character, which is part of my whole issue, who you really grow to like and who's basically our POV character. She enters this strange southern gothic mansion with an old couple in it who clearly are hiding secrets and it's jenna or gina rollins who from my childhood i remember as the badass gloria who is helping to protect the little kid in the 1980 movie gloria i couldn't believe that was rollins in this and i have to say in one of the hugest disappointments initially of the film even though i was enjoying it john hurt as her husband who absolutely gets nothing to do in the entire movie except look scared and distraught and have one scene where he tries to gasp out words around a tongue that isn't working. There is no need for John Hurt to be in this movie. He is utterly wasted, except for the fact that his face, as he got older, was a face that looked like a face that had experienced misery beyond all human experience. <laughs> Oh, John that, Hurt. That's just the way he looked. It's why he was perfect for the war doctor in Doctor Who, because this is a guy that went through the time war. But he's nothing in this. Any old man could have played this part. My theory is they wanted somebody who essentially gave the older person a feeling of being an alien and having a chestburster come out of you. And so they thought, well, why not just go back to that and just pull him right from the cast of Alien and and put him in the movie. And so I think that's what they were going for. I think the sad thing is I just I spent the whole movie waiting for the moment where like the curse was going to be lifted and I thought okay, he's going to get some kind of powerhouse scene toward the end cuz he's going to get to talk finally. Nope. And uh and basically rounding out the cast is Peter Sarsgaard as a lawyer who becomes a sort of local confidant for Kate Hudson. And since, as we found out, the only other thing I ever remembered or saw him in was as the main villain in Green Lantern, why I didn't peg right from the beginning that he was <laughs> gonna be a bastard in this too, I don't know. He just seemed so nice. She meant so much to them. Her being here. I know it wasn't for long, but they really loved her. I loved it right away. The bayou locations are atmospheric and beautiful, even as they're run down and dirty. There's a beauty to the architecture, to the, the swampy lands. It's so evocative. It's so atmospheric. It, New Orleans feels almost right away like magic. Well, New Orleans is a character. Yes. In, in any film that is shot there. Anybody who has ever tried to recreate it without physically filming there ultimately fails because you have to film there in order to feel like you are there. Like that's a really important piece of it. One of the things I found um, when I was reading up on the film after is that the place where they they filmed most of the action of Skeleton Key, like the main house, formerly was a plantation 
and they used the same grounds, like the same house and grounds to film 12 Years a Slave. Oh, okay. Um, Obviously not looking quite so run down. I'm sure they did a little sprucing and it had kind of come into different repair at that point. But clearly it's evocative of a certain time in history. And it, it certainly feels that way for most of the film. Another thing I loved about the movie was the music. And I looked it up as Edward Shermer, who's not a name that immediately comes to mind. He'd, he'd evidently worked as an assistant, I think, with Michael Kamen on some things. He'd worked on the Charlie's Angels movies and K-Pax and a couple other things. But everything about this, the music, the direction, who is uh, Ian Softley, who also worked on K-Pax and other stuff, all of it seemed to be clicking. All of it was coming together beautifully. And it's instantly involving... And it, like any good house-based mystery, you're with her as she starts to figure out that there is something insidious, something dark, possibly supernatural going on in a house where all the mirrors have been removed from the walls, which I'm proud of the fact that I kind of called that one what that was about. <laughs> I thought, oh, okay, so there are ghosts appearing in all the mirrors. And it's like, yeah, kind of. And as she starts to unravel the mystery, the tension builds, and I think a beautiful piece of work. I was really enjoying it. I think that there are a lot of cliches in the writing, for better and for worse. Some of it just simply is the fact that when you tell like a gothic manor ghost story, there are certain story beats that you're going to hit, right? It's like, boy, this is a big house. These people seem nice, but they're kind of odd. But I guess that's okay. Note, the house really is quite weird. Note, these people are in fact weirder than I thought they were. There's definitely something, like it goes in that order. Like there are things you discover in a certain order in a gothic ghost story. I think there's also something to be said for the fact that like kind of baked into American pop culture is the idea that when you come from New Jersey, as Kate Hudson's character does, to the South, quotation marks around it, everybody is going to be weird. The South is another country. The very fish out of water story. So, I mean, there are some elements of it that are cliched in an okay way because a lot of that type of storytelling hinges on the why, not necessarily the what. Like the what is going to happen and it happens in certain beats but it's the why that is what makes it interesting. For me, I think all that atmosphere that you're describing and the thing that kind of draws you in and makes you interested in it covers some flaws when it comes to the story writing. Specifically, the fact that this is a story that draws very heavily from a very Black experience and sort of black cultural references, the fact that you have these two characters who are Papa Justify and Mama Cecile, who were sort of the original servants who worked in the household in the 20s. They're pictured in flashbacks in these little films, but they never actually speak. You hear his voice on a record. Not themselves, anyway. No, you never have a voice coming from them right and the only other black characters that you have in the film are caroline who is the kate hudson character her roommate jill 
mm-hmm. who very conveniently provides a lot of exposition explaining to her the difference between hoodoo and voodoo, showing her the laundromat out of the back of which her aunt buys her hoodoo paraphernalia, the woman who sells her the hoodoo paraphernalia from the back of the shop. And that's pretty much it. And the other nurse who quit, who she goes and talks to, who is clearly a local and who clearly is like, I don't mess with that. Like, I left. All of the people who are giving her the history of the house and the people who are the lived history of the house aren't really the central characters of this story. So it complicates things, I think, for me in terms of storytelling, because I do think this movie could benefit in a way that a lot of other films, I think, don't from a reboot. It's like you and I know I have a thing about reboots. I think when a film is good, it can just exist and you can watch it in any time period and it works. This is one where I do think the story itself has a lot of kernels in it that are interesting. And I think that it could be sort of rebooted and retold in a way that if nothing else in recasting the film might fix some of those flaws. I I did think a bit about whether we were going to do it and or just try to find something else because I felt like my very visceral, I was very angry at the end of this movie. I also felt that my very visceral reaction to it, I wasn't sure I was entitled to it or should talk about it because we'll get to it. I, I do want to save a bit longer the ending, but I thought since it's so racially oriented and has a lot to say about the slave experience and the two characters of Papa Justify and Cecile are at the center of that, even though, as you point out, they're not really centered in the story I felt like, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it just isn't for me. Like, I don't have a right to be angry. And we'll talk about that. Arguably, the perfect companion piece to talk about with this movie is actually Get Out. And a lot of people have pointed out that Skeleton Key and Get Out are, in some sense, opposite sides of a coin, in some ways, companion pieces. I could see that. It shines a light on a sort of aspect of this culture that sometimes doesn't get, I think, as much attention, especially if you're a a zombie aficionado or someone that has seen other Bayou-based horror where we tend to talk about voodoo. This movie specifically draws the distinction between voodoo and hoodoo. Hoodoo being, and, and and I say this also, not entirely having a lot of deep personal experience with researching this to the extent that I researched other things that are directly attributable to the zombie genre. Right. But this movie specifically utilizes the concept of hoodoo, which is basically a folk collection of traditions and magical conjuration and borrows from a host of different cultures, not just African and Caribbean, but also Native American, and does not have the same, as as I understand it, does not have the same concrete religious basis with a pantheon of gods and goddesses and other beings as voodoo does, Mm -hmm. which is more what you would consider a religion, whereas hoodoo is a folk practice through which slaves in America 
found a way to express themselves and connect with something spiritually, and that built throughout these communities in a way that I haven't delved into nearly as much as some of the other things, but it's fascinating. And this movie specifically deals with hoodoo and introduces a number of interesting aspects of how that works, including the fact that there are conjurers who are the practitioners who can do all kinds of things for you, and Papa Justify is one of them. We get records where he's been recorded from the past doing various uh, rituals, and it features a lot of things you'd expect in a lot of these stories. You get candles, you get bones. It's like things you need that are like uh, the physical attribute, the things that you need to... Viscous stuff in jars. A lot of vis- I, well, later we talk about the beyond. You mentioned something about viscosity. <laughs> we get to that. The theme of this episode is viscosity. Yeah. But uh, and one of the things I really liked in this in particular, I think, comes into play a few times in in one of my favorite moments of uh, Hudson's character, Caroline, really trying to take control of the situation is the use of brick dust as a way of protecting yourself from enemies because they cannot cross a line if you drop brick dust over a door sill. Yeah, or they specifically say, and again, I don't know if this is something that comes from that cultural tradition or something they just kind of made up for the movie but it sounds like they wanted it to feel very rooted in it so i would think that they researched it but the idea being specifically somebody who means to cause you harm can't cross that line but also even more so than that i like that they make a point of saying that it only works if you believe in it that it has to be something that you truly believe in order for it to have any effect on you. Well, one of the things that's definitely a primary theme in this film is the idea of belief versus not necessarily ignorance, but defiance of uh, belief or power and the idea of whether anything is real or not. Does it matter if something is real or not if what matters is whether you believe in it? One of the things about John Hurt's character is he can't speak. He's bedridden. The one time he's able to speak is when she conducts a ritual in his eyesight that is designed to free him from a curse, and he's briefly able to try to speak. And of course, the question that comes up at that point is, does it really matter? She doesn't think it's real. But her point is, as as a medical person, her idea is, well, he thinks it's real. So if he watches it, he will believe that he's freed. The fun of the movie in that sense is that you really don't get absolute confirmation of the truth of the supernatural, which indeed there is, until the ending. The ending can't exist without the magic being real, because there are too many people involved in being psychotic then and believing there are other people for that not to be real. But until that point, the idea is, could it be that maybe it's just a collective belief But no, it turns out there is actually magic going on. And I think that's one of the elements in particular that you liked about her character. Because a lot of times you get a character in these sort of gothic stories or ghost stories who either from the start 100% believes in spirits, but also thinks that they can better communicate with them or 100% doesn't believe in them and just thinks it's all a bunch of hooey. And she's kind of squarely in the middle in that she believes herself in science for her own sake. The first conversation she has with Violet, Violet asks her if she's religious and she says, I try to keep an open mind. 
And so it's one of those where she's somebody who is open to ideas. She doesn't think that spirits are real, but she also is very interested in being able to provide non-traditional care to people who need it. And so she kind of opens up her mind to maybe this will help him. Of course, another aspect of that, too, and one of the reasons why I'm mad at it, is that the lesson learned by the end is maybe keeping an open mind is dangerous because one of the things the ending actually shows you is it takes her believing in it to suffer the fate she suffers. They need her to believe in it. If she hadn't believed in it, she might have been safe, which is another reason I hate it because that suggests the idea that ultimately one of the messages of the movie is maybe don't keep an open mind so much because you're going to risk falling into the pit Maybe it's not the open mind that's the problem. Maybe it's the hero complex. Because the moment she thinks, it's sort of pretty early on, she thinks that maybe Violet is drugging him with something or keeping him incapacitated, that there's something wrong with her. That's the point when you pack up your things, you leave the house, you go to whatever local office there is for elder care or elder welfare, and you say, I worked in this home, I have reason to believe that this is not a good environment for him, and I think that someone should check that out or take him out of the home. Right. But because of her own experiences and her character and who she is and feeling like she wants to constantly fix things, a little on the nose, having some daddy issues about not being there when her father died. It's a bit too much of a sledgehammer scene when they show us her looking at John Hurt and then looking at the picture of her father. Like, we get it. We don't need the correlation in a visual. Yeah. So in a sense, part of the problem is not necessarily that she has an open mind. It's that she thinks that she is the end-all and the be-all when it comes to fixing things. When realistically, if she had just gone to someone else, and maybe nothing would have happened. Maybe she goes to like an authority, they go out and they say, you know, he's just uh, an old guy who had a stroke. And yeah, his wife is weird. But you know, people in general are kind of weird. Are you weird? Yes, I am. Yes, I am weird. You are weird. Yes. You're weird. Thank God. <laughs> and you just kind of leave it at that. And like literally everyone else who'd ever tried to work at the house was like, nah, I'm out. Like, I'm not doing this. She stays granted. Yes. So she's got the hero complex. She actually physically tries to remove him. But see, this is my problem. We'll have to get directly to the ending in a few minutes anyway, so I can deal <laughs> with what my problem actually is. Because, yeah, I mean, granted hero complex. But the problem I have with that is. I don't see that as an argument for the ending, though, because she's not ever portrayed as a character where we as the audience are, are given any sense that there's hubris involved here. Like if you played some kind of beat that suggests, oh, Caroline, you're always trying too hard. You know, that some people can't be said, you know, they don't do anything to set up the idea that maybe she's overreaching. Maybe she tries too much. Maybe she sees herself as a hero. If that was in there. I would then argue the ending has a bit of a setup because the idea is hero, fall. But instead, all you get in the movie is she is a wonderfully loving person who at the beginning of the film cares about all the elderly people that she reads for, cares about the fact that their belongings are thrown into a dumpster, that their families don't care. She's determined to do something to help. And her reward is a living hell. For no reason. As I said before, there's a racial component to this story. 
which to me makes me question my own judgment about whether it's right for me to be concerned. One of the things also I wanted to go back to, mm-hmm. you mentioned about, you know, some of the uh, uh, flashbacks. As we both point out, there's an intense lynching scene in this that sets Very. up that sets up the the horror that Papa Justify and Mama Cecile went through. Okay, so here's basically what happens in the movie. <laughs> here's what's going on. What's going on is that Papa Justify and Mama Cecile were practitioners of hoodoo, and both as I suppose as revenge for the horrific and totally understandable. The treatment that they received at the hands of the white people that ran this uh, plantation. The plantation. He was or... a banker. In He's the a banker. Flesh. He's a banker. He's a banker. They first tried to bewitch his children, and apparently were probably successful at that. And Papa Justify had a means of transferring his and Cecile's souls into host bodies, so that they could live ostensibly forever. There's a line Peter Sarsgaard has at something where he says something about not understanding what it means to die or like that's not something i know anything about or something like that because their idea is they're going to live forever so basically what we find out at the end is those two despite suffering horrifically at the hands of their white masters took over the bodies of the banker's children and now over the years have been transferring most recently to general and john hurt's characters peter sarsgaard the lawyer is Papa Justify in that lawyer's body. The lawyer's soul is evidently sitting in John Hurt's body. That was the old man. And Jenna Rollins is Cecile, who they're trying to get her out into a new host, but they can't get a woman because everyone who ever shows up to work there runs away because all of the black people that show up to work there, who's she wants a black body again, they know too much. They understand the environment and they run. Kate Hudson doesn't get it. And she's well-meaning and has a good heart, but she's out of her depth. And the end goal is Cecile's going to get Kate Hudson's body and Peter Sarsgaard and Kate Hudson are going to go on. They've already got things set up so that they'll retain ownership of the house and they'll move on from there. And the movie ends that way. It ends with success for Papa Justify and Mama Cecile. Kate Hudson attempts to fight to save herself. She believes she can do it by using their own magic against them, only to find out that by believing in the magic and by participating, she actually sets up the circumstances of her own transfer. And the last we see of Caroline, the character, is her horrified and mute and trapped for the rest of her short life now in the body of the aging Jenna Rollins character as Kate Hudson moves on now with Mama Cecile in her. And I was livid because the entire movie is setting up the idea that this young woman who cares so much and wants to help people is going to face, as horror does, is going to face a dark challenge. And then I thought the twist would be she will use the dark magic or some form of magic against the practitioners of magic and succeed in getting away. Maybe with a little wink or a nod at the end. But I thought, okay... She's going to get out of there because she's a person who cares and she's a person that in no way deserves anything that happens to her. And yet you get to the end of the movie and she's going to suffer and die in the body of an old woman while her body is stolen. And I can't get over how much I despise that ending and feel it ruins the whole movie. On the other hand, the problem I have with it is the villains of the film are not necessarily villains because 
they're the black slaves that used their knowledge of their folk arts to overcome their white masters and live on. And do I have the right to be mad at that ending? Maybe I don't. I mean, I think it's good to kind of address the the complications of it. Because initially, their use of the hoodoo, the first time they do it, is ostensibly to create a sort of um, agency for themselves and to be able to go past whatever victimhood they may have at the hands of the people that they work for and to sort of extricate themselves from that situation. They do steal the bodies of children, though, in that first thing, too. They do. Which also makes me worried about, are we missing the fact that maybe this movie, is this movie racist? Because it puts those two black characters in as the villains who are preying on and for all intents and purposes really killing these people in order Mm -hmm. to steal their bodies. Is that right? (laughs) That, That that's a story to even tell? And I'm not sure it's a question we can answer. I've read a lot of different reviews of the film both like from the time it was released and more recently Mm -hmm. um, just before we recorded. And I feel like people are really split on it. Mm. A lot of people think that the people who are critics of it think at best it's just lazy storytelling or it's a bit cliche. It leans a little too heavily. Sort of like I guess I had described earlier about having people who are are of a culture explain the culture to your protagonist who's the one who's going to live it out and perform it that is that a form of cultural appropriation it's interesting that jenna Rollins character is the one that provides most of the exposition and then we find out at the end technically she's cecile yeah which is also complicated but you still have a white actress giving that exposition yes so a lot of people have sort of said at best it's cultural appropriation it's something that's derivative but at worst there are a lot of people who've called it out and said you got some racial issues here and and the thing is i do think the movie is trying to do something different and the reason i say that is because you mentioned it briefly before but there is a very visceral and very horrific scene of a lynching in one of the flashbacks and watching the whole assembled crowd of like drunk white southern people turn of the century literally like swilling vodka out of bottles and spitting it on their bodies as they go up in flames i mean it's it feels like the finger is pointing at the crowd of people perpetrating the crime and saying this is bad this is wrong as a way of sort of ironically the word justify but the way of justifying what these two characters have done in order to escape that to sort of say of course they would want to escape like look around you like look at all of this i guess the thing that occurs to me too is in a way it weirdly connects back to some of what we were saying about the fog in a very different context which is like you point out a lot of the modern residents of Antonio Bay don't deserve what's happening to them. Not at all. Yeah, I would say the same thing about a character like Kate Hudson. I, I don't think she deserves... I, I also think it's also notable that when we first meet her, the person she's reading to, one of the elderly people she's taking care of, is a black man. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not an accident, I'm sure. But it's like this idea that she cares. 
She's trying to take care of people. She only wants to help. She should not be someone cursed to this horrific death, imprisonment and death. It's just wrong. And I know we've probably talked about this in past episodes of Doctor of the Dead, too. I think I've reached a point in my life where it takes a lot for me to be able to appreciate or enjoy in any way a story in which there's an absence of some kind of moral or ethical balance in the outcome. And as we'll talk about in the next one, I would argue you don't care about or feel the same way about the characters at the heart of that that you do Kate Hudson's character in this. And I think in a way, I mean, I, I tend to rewrite the end of movies a lot. I mean, even movies that I enjoy fully, I tend to rewrite the endings just as an exercise. I do think there was probably a way of ending this movie, not necessarily with having Kate Hudson's character, having Caroline use their rituals against them and seeing her come out triumphant. There's a way of sort of showing that all of this is going on and then leaving it slightly ambiguous at the end that I think maybe wouldn't have felt so much like a punch to the gut for you. You know, I just thought of two other versions. And again, I feel like I'm not qualified to really provide the alternatives here. I'm going to throw them out anyway, but I don't really think it just occurred to me. What if her friend had shown up to try to help her in the final act? And the ending is her taking her out of the house. It's going to be okay, Caroline. And then you realize that she's Cecile. Cecile got the black body that she wanted. Mm-hmm. Or is that in, a, in itself racist to then take your one main black character in the in the main cast and say she becomes the victim? Although technically not. I don't know. And the other, the only other thing I was thinking of is what if the ending wound up being she gets that body and Kate Hudson is Papa Justify. Because what difference does that make if they get vessels? I don't know. I feel like there are a lot of other ways this could have gone. Even dark ways that wouldn't have felt quite as much a punch in the heart as the way they did it. Mm-hmm. I felt betrayed by the movie. Like I'd invested in it to the point where I thought, I'm going to always have liked this movie. And it's like, no. And I would still say, I would say to somebody, you should watch it. But with a caveat, a pretty big one. But there's still so much to recommend it and, and so much stylistically that's good. And and you're right. There's a lot derivative. Like I even have a note here. <laughs> there's the part where she finds the, the rooms. Like one of the things that's in this is there's a mysterious room in the attic that she's told all oh, that's never been opened, which of course is a yeah, lie. The skeleton key <clears throat> that opens every lock in the house mysteriously doesn't open one lock. And of course, her instinct has got to open that lock. Yeah. And she discovers it's, of course, the hoodoo room that has everything. And it's like. It almost felt for a moment like Cabin in the Woods, the bit where they find everything in the basement, <laughs> any of which could trigger a thing. In the space of like a minute in that scene as she walks through the room, I wrote down all in caps, don't read the book, don't put on the ring, don't play the record. <laughs> and and we're seeing baby doll heads and jars with organs in them and animal skulls and was like a sewn up face and everything. <laughs> every cliche all together and it's like here's all the stuff don't touch anything and she starts playing with all of it and you see that room and your first thought should be you know reading to people at the hospice in the city wasn't actually all that bad yeah why she quit that you know it's like well why deny those people the care that she thinks that they should have you're like going back you're you've got a nice roommate realistically it seems like a pretty nice apartment because she goes back there at one point they they keep hanging out at that nice bar which seems really nice and they and there's good music and 
Yeah. They go out and have drinks and they talk about work. And no, she's got to go to the murder mansion where the body swapping demons are. And it's just, uh, I don't know. It's a compulsion. And there, there was like a couple interesting touches. It also, there's a locked gate toward the end. It's just like the haunting. Very much so. I also was telling you, I got a feel like the atomic brain. Or I think that's also called monstrosity. It is. Everybody knows it is the atomic brain, though. Which, you know, brings it right back around to last week's episode, because that's got Marjorie Eaton in it. Oh, yeah. Who's uh, playing the, uh, the, the older lady. woman who wants a younger body in that one. Yeah. You've also got, I guess, maybe in a more sci-fi bent to it, like an invasion of the body snatchers. Definitely. And, and like I said, this really fits with Get Out. And all the issues we said... We have a skeleton key, of course, get out. The villains, the people perpetrating the crime on the bodies are the white people who are appropriating the black bodies. That's flipping the script from this in a way that resolves the issues that you'd have with a story like this and instead gives you a room for cultural commentary in a way that this, I feel like you're right, they may be trying to do something, but they're not quite getting there with it. Yeah, being John Malkovich—that's another one oh, okay. that has that kind of yeah body inhabiting feel to it. I will also note that this movie features an old lady with clouded over white eyes, which will be relevant in a few minutes. But it's just standard horror trope for the blind are always the ones that can see deeper and farther, mm-hmm. and it's also very much like the uh, like the grandmother in Phantasm, the fortune telling grandma. So there's like interesting little connections like that. In fact, I have Phantasm written down in my notes for the beyond is is what reminds me of. So the only thing I I would mention with Skeleton Key is something that we didn't really know till we looked it up, but that the screenwriter, Aaron Kruger, also is responsible for Scream 3, which is a film that a lot of people didn't like as much as I liked it, but I have a love for all things Scream. But you can feel that sort of same type of writing where you're trapped in a house that has secrets and trying to figure it out, except that Scream is like an assembled group in a house, more like House on Haunted Hill or The Haunting. And Skeleton Key obviously is a much more claustrophobic experience. I actually wonder if as time passes, I'll be able to revisit this movie knowing where it's ending and then be able to enjoy it for what it is rather than get so punched in the gut by it, which I think is likely because a lot of that came from the initial shock of realizing, are you really going to leave us with this? But now I'll know. I will say on a second watching, it's much more enjoyable to watch the interactions between Luke, the lawyer, who's Peter Sarsgaard, and Violet, Gina Rollins. Is it Gina or Jenna? I'm not entirely sure, so... We're going to say both, and one of them will be right. Gina, Jenna Rollins. Gina, Jenna Rollins. All the interactions that they have, because by the end of the film, you realize that they are, in fact, lovers and ostensibly soulmates. It's just that she hasn't moved out of the body yet. Do- doesn't he have a line early in the movie where he says something to her about, like, you know you're the only woman for me or yep. something like that? Yeah. Um, yeah. And she even says, keep your perspirations off me or, like, keep your perspirations from me. It's like a very sort of Southern, like, ugh, like, go on. Mm-hmm. And it's... uh 
And it's like he's perving on the Kate Hudson character because... He knows that that's where she'll be. And so he's sort of just like pre-getting used to being with her, even though she's not in her yet. But it has its issues. I had remembered really liking it. And I don't think I liked it as much when I watched it again with you. I got caught up in the atmosphere the first time I watched it. And then the second time watching it, it's a little easier to see what the flaws are. But still, I would say that it's worth watching. Some would disagree. I've read a lot of reviews that describe it as just too slow and it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do anything as sort of the non-story based issues that people have with it. I think there are plenty of slow stories that we both enjoy. And in a sense, The Fog is kind of a slow story right up until the point that it isn't. And this has kind of a similar pacing to it. So I'd still say it's worth a watch. I'd say I don't like it quite as much on a rewatch as I did the first time. But that still doesn't mean it's not worth seeing. Despite being someone that's wound up getting very steeped in horror, both, I guess, personally and professionally over the years, uh, and having encountered lots of his work, these were the kind of movies that you would always find in the old clamshell or VHS boxes in the video stores, and it's like, oh, what's that? Seven Doors of Death or Beyond. Although, all of that, despite all that, I've never felt like I could say I'm a Fulci fan. There are people that are real rabid about Fulci's work not just the zombie stuff but his giallas and many other genres he worked in he's one of two people along with Herschel Gordon Lewis it's often referred to as the godfather of gore it's a justifiable title I just never felt like much of a fan I can revisit zombie 2 very often there's something goofy about that that just always works and it's familiar with his other stuff I don't mind seeing it from time to time and it's interesting but I feel that Fulci's storytelling and knowing what I know about some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, it's not inaccurate to think so. I feel like a lot of Fulci's storytelling in some of these movies feels like abuse aimed at the audience as much as the cast he's working with. And when you see him in his usual cameos in The Beyond, from 1981, our second film of the episode, he pops up at, what is it, the City Council Library or wherever he is. His big bow tie. He's he's annoyed librarian who doesn't want to get the book for you. Yeah, I mean, Fulci just looks like a man who's disgruntled is probably the best word all the time. And uh, our star in this is Catriona McCall, who is in several of these. This is the middle chapter in Fulci's Gates of Hell trilogy that includes, and I'm only going to use one title apiece, look them up, <laughs> City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and then House by the Cemetery. Catriona McCall talked about working with him and how abusive Fulci was. For example, I think it's in Say the Living Dead. There's a scene where she's trapped in a coffin and uh, they try to break her out of it. And a pickaxe goes through the lid of the coffin, lands right at her eyes and stops. Mm -hmm. That was done for real. He was yelling at her to stay in the coffin because he wanted the shot. And, (laughs) And she still, years later, would say, He's a misunderstood genius and he wants what he wants. And he's got, it's like, he tried to kill you with a pickaxe. You hear a lot of the same type of stories about Kubrick 
as well. And Tarantino. And the way like people are treated on set. Yeah. But McCall is like, I feel like McCall is like, there's like Stockholm Syndrome or something. She's Maybe. like, fat. but anyway, okay. So all that is to say that some of you out there might be Fauci fans. I don't consider myself one of them. I think that there's a lot problematic about Lucio Fulci, and I'm not sure he deserves a lot of the respect he gets. I do think, however, he managed to create a lot of work that is undeniably fascinating and worthy of being considered cult because it just becomes something people are drawn to for positive and negative reasons. And one thing I do agree he does well is he comes up with visuals that are both arresting and disgusting and at times almost poetic, but he's not really that great a storyteller. And I think that Beyond, in some respects, may be the greatest example of a movie he made in which the goal was a series of set pieces and visuals where the story is basically non-existent. The story is a woman has inherited a hotel in New Orleans, tries to fix it up, it's on a gate of hell, and that's it. There isn't any <laughs> other story. It's, they're all going to wind up in hell eventually. It's all going to hell. Let's just watch a bunch of stuff happen. And that's the beyond. I mean, I think maybe the trick with this is not really thinking about it as a film. Like, you don't think about it as a film that is trying to tell a story. Um, like, not something that's narrative. But instead, just think about it as sort of a piece of surrealistic performance art. It especially in sort of the last five minutes or so of I, the movie, which I, I think are, are where it shines. Maybe perhaps the, the flip side to how you feel about Skeleton Key. I think the last five, ten minutes of the beyond are actually the, the best parts of the movie. I think it's beautiful. Beautiful in a, in a horrific and stark Bleak. way. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that the surrealism is sort of what feels, I guess, more apt instead of narrative we were just also last night we watched these movies in preparation for this episode a couple nights ago mm -hmm. last night just as part of our run of constantly watching horror for the month why not was we put on it follows again wasn't the classroom scene in that was t.s Eliot's the wasteland yes and it's interesting because that's really like Fulci's take on hell in this or purgatory is just this endless wasteland of bodies melding into the landscape and that's where they get trapped in. It is beautiful in that horrible, you know what I mean, visually beautiful in how stark it is. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I thought of when we were watching it, which again is another movie that really falls short in storytelling but shines in like atmosphere and visuals is the movie What Dreams May Come. I know of it. I've never seen it. Where essentially... Doesn't he have to go get his wife? Yeah, yeah. It's someone... It's Robin Williams and he's traveling through hell, essentially, to that... try to retrieve his wife's soul because she's trapped there. And there are some visuals, including walking across this open plain with people's trapped sort of in it like a marsh of people i feel like that movie would be very painful to watch now it i don't think i could watch robin williams go through purgatory no i mean it it was painful to watch even when it came it out it's another like one that's just very bleak yeah is what it feels like i mean ultimately not but it has the same sort of idea 
of visuals. It's like this surrealistic wonderland. Both heaven and hell in that film are kind of like that. The beyond, like we're saying, the beyond is basically a dreamscape. And as I already mentioned, so like Catriona McCall's character, she inherits this hotel. McCall herself believes that they were ripping off The Shining quite a bit because one of the things is there was an artist who lived there in the 20s. He was literally crucified. He was painting the picture of the wasteland that is beyond the gate in the basement. Another thing, by the way, basement. In New Orleans, technically, there are no basements because of the kind of land. There are actually buildings, apparently, with basements, but they're few and far between. It seems like it'd be unlikely that a hotel in New Orleans would have a basement quite like this one does. Because but then of again, floodplains and such. Then again, it's also a gateway to hell, so who knows what, what's going on in that building. <laughs> we don't really know about <laughs> yeah. like the permits required yeah. for the hell gate. Besides, it's a hotel basement that you can also reach not only from within the hotel, but from within the local hospital. So it doesn't matter, really, what it is. I also was telling you I got a phantasm feel from it as well both the sort of visuals of some of the characters and also that dreamscape quality to it i mean phantasm would have been released only a couple years prior two years yeah yeah i mean and the shining was right right before before. and the other main movie that most people think was a direct connection and i think it's far more likely uh, at least visually if nothing else is the sentinel from 1977 which also utilizes the concept of sentinels with completely white clouded over eyes that serve as like the guardians to protect a gate. I think it's a gate to hell, but... but It's always a gate to hell. Yeah, and in this we get this constant thing of there's Emily, the the blind woman who tries to explain to her what's going on, and she has these white, sometimes white crackled eyes, and the final scene features the white eyes as well. And boy, in this really restored version we watched... You can really see these things that look like, damn, they look like ceramic discs that they shoved into their eyeballs. They look that painful must... to wear oh and they God. look extraordinary on camera. Yeah, they look great, but oof, that must have been horrible. But of course, Fulci loves torturing everybody that work with them. So. And eyeballs. And of course, like I was already saying, there's that idea of the blind see what the sighted do not. And that's certainly something you could say is a theme here. That, And also, in this case, you see too much of the evil, you go blind. The the young girl whose father, the plumber, dies. And his mother shows up at the hospital while he's still laying in the morgue, where I believe an autopsy has not yet been done, yeah. to dress him in his suit for the funeral. Because as we've already talked about, and as you learn when you watch enough of these movies... Italian filmmakers apparently do not understand how the world works at all. In Fulci's world, (laughs) New York police get bonuses for bringing in salvage from the ocean. I don't know. Is that true? I don't think so. Please let us know if that is true, because in in Zombie (laughs) 2, they're really keen on that bonus they're going to get for bringing in the boat. Apparently, people believe that you should dress the person in the hospital morgue for the funeral and not at the funeral home. Uh, It's insane. But this also features guns that leave tiny bullet holes, except the one time it shoots a girl's head, at which time it blasts it open like a melon. So the rules of physics do not apply here. And probably they shouldn't. It is a Gates of Hell movie, after all. I mean, the argument could be once this Hellgate is even, like, cracked. Like, basically, the basement's flooded, right? Mm -hmm. She hires a plumber. She sends him down to the basement. He finds the part where the flood is and makes the hole bigger. (laughs) He's like, water's coming from here. Better make the hole bigger. Granted, 
I don't know a lot about plumbing and it does actually make sense that you would want to find the source behind the wall, but also you open a hole in a wall in a basement at any point in time, it's just bad news. Like that's where it all starts. And I guess the argument could be made that from the moment he busts through the brick wall to where the hell gate is, everybody's screwed. Like you're done at that point. Doesn't she also say something about, I think it's Arthur and Martha that they came with the hotel. They came with the hotel. We talked about how you should never stay anywhere where people come with the place. Mm -mm. No, if you inherit like the most beautiful palatial mountain and when you get there, you're told that like, these are the caretakers. They come with the house. You get back in the car And you go back to your studio apartment because Mm -hmm. that is not good. It is never good. There's also a book in this. There are a number of things that connect to the skeleton key in terms of just maybe like tropes or Mm. artifacts. This has the book of Ibon that's sitting in room 36. Sometimes, sometimes it's in Emily's room. Sometimes it's nowhere. And David Warbeck's Dr. John McCabe, continuing the theme of abuse that runs through all of Fulci's movies, treats Catriona McCall's Lisa as if, for some reason, an adult woman he's never met before is going to decide to play a prank on him. For reasons I don't understand, he treats her horribly, right to her face, acts like she's lying about everything, and never, ever apologizes to her when the zombies show up. And that's the part where you really got mad because you're like, he should apologize once he realizes how real this is. And this is why I don't have a problem with this movie ending with the two of them trapped forever in hell because, oh, yes, did I mention that? That's where it ends up. The way Kate Hudson's character gets in Skeleton Key because, first of all, David Warbeck's character is an asshole. We don't care about him. He deserves it. He's no Tom Atkins, that's for sure. And we don't get to know her at all. We don't get to know her enough as a person. I mean, she is abused by him emotionally and verbally. She doesn't deserve this either. I mean, arguably, neither of them deserve to be trapped forever in purgatory before their time. She's also a little, like, flippant about things. Like, the very start of the movie, the painters are working on the outside of the hotel. The guy falls off the scaffolding, cracks his head open, blood is spurting out of his mouth, and she's just looking at him like, when is the paint going to get finished? I changed my mind then. They both deserve it. See, that's why the end of this one works, and the end of Skeleton Key doesn't. Mm -hmm. By the way, the guy falls off the scaffold found out he's the head of the louisiana film commission at the time that's his cameo in the movie and then they just put him on the couch where he continues to spurt blood out of his mouth and then they're like oh did somebody call the doctor we also know there are a lot of numbers in this seven gateways and seven cursed places while some of the other movies will deal with that it's room 36 and it's set in 1981, which was the present of the time. The flashbacks in 1927, where they get Schweike the artist and, and crucify him in the basement. Which makes no sense, because like 54 years... It's 54 years. Why did they not make it 50? Why didn't they make it some, Why didn't they make it 66? Why didn't they make it something anything, interesting? Anything. Why it, 1927? It's a very specific and odd choice. I'm not sure what that was about. Other things connected to Skeleton Key, by the way. There are scenes where you see... The empty uh, squares where pictures are missing on the wall, which is exactly what she sees in Skeleton Key when all the mirrors are gone. Both movies also feature the main character driving over long, picturesque highways, like just vast distances. Very similar shots. But the one thing this movie does have, and you'd expect it in Fulci, is a lot of gore. 
including some of his most iconic gory moments, one of which I can't actually watch in its entirety because no matter how stupid they look through most of it, because they're partly made of puppets, involves a spider attack on somebody's face. By the way, which also features briefly in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. There's a brief glimpse of shots of that scene in a scene, I think, that's a montage of the radioactive spider mm-hmm. in Spider-Man, weirdly. Because Sam Raimi, so he wanted to throw some fault Yeah, for sure. Joe the Plumber uh, rises up as a corpse in a scene that is virtually shot identically to the way Fulci shot the rise of Wormeye in Zombie 2, with similar results. There's a lot of tearing of uh, latexy flesh and blood pouring out. There's acid poured on people's faces for a very, very long time. There's the girl who gets her head blown off by a gun. And then eye gougings. Because there's one thing about Italian horror cinema. They love it going for the eye. And we get eye gougings in this uh, with a nail and lots of eyeballs popping out, which I know you can't watch. I think it's goofy enough that I can handle that. I, I have problem with it i think when we were watching it i was saying it's the viscosity yes that's the problem i think it was when the acid thing started and the room is just filling up with foamy blood stuff and you said something when you bring viscosity into it (laughs) it's when you have to start drawing the line but here's the thing i have talked at length in many places about how perplexed i've often been about this recurring motif of eye gouging and eye injury in Italian horror cinema, particularly the films of Fulci and a few of his contemporaries. I also, for those that don't know, spent 20 years in the comic industry and only recently remembered a correlation there where I worked on the, at the company that did the Overstreet comic book price guide where we cataloged all the comics. And one of the things that had become common to do in the price guide at that time, which had like certain language and terms that anybody that bought that book every year knew well, was that there were a number of comics that had been cited in the 50s by Dr. Frederick Wortham as supposedly being the cause of juvenile delinquency. And one of the things he cataloged in that book were comics that featured injury to eye panels, panels that featured injury to or the threat of injury to an eye. So if you flip through Overstreet, you would occasionally see comics that would be footnoted with, this one's one of the ones that features an injury to eye panel. You then hopped online, did a little bit of research that yielded quite a lot uh, in terms of some insight, you mentioned the beginning of this segment too, talking about this being surrealist. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I myself have a great love for surrealist paintings. Like, I'm a huge Salvador Dali fan. A couple years ago, I was visiting a friend in Belgium, and I spent like literally from the time it opened and closed the entire an entire day at the Magritte museum that they have there and i love it there are some who've sort of drawn comparisons to i guess sort of the eye gouging eye injury type scenes and forgive my absolute inability to pronounce this but the 1929 movie andalou um andalusian dog um which was done by salvador dali and also luis buñuel one of the sort of more famous scenes from that short film is a close-up of an eye getting sliced with a razor blade. And it's a quick cut from a scene of a girl and the idea is that it's supposed to be her eye. Um, They achieved it with, I think, a calf's eye. It was like an animal eye. And I mentioned a movie that features a sliced eye scene or a thriller. 
that later influenced Tarantino and his design, I think, of Daryl Hannah's character in Kill Bill. Mm. And a lot of people kind of point to that. And that movie itself, um, it's not very long. I think it's like 17 minutes long. And it's completely disjointed. It has no narrative. Like some of the scenes seem to lead into the next, but none of them have any relation to each other. It's it's surrealism, but on film instead of on canvas. For a lot of people, they sort of feel like maybe the best sort of connection point is to say that it's sort of this performance art piece that explains what horror does to the viewer. That like the idea is when you're viewing horror, it's like a shock to your eyes. In a sense, it's almost like just getting like slammed in your eyeballs with what you're watching, with the viscer, with the gore, with the horror. And I read one article last night that kind of put a correlation as well between what Fulci does on film and what a lot of the post-war... And I guess that's post-World War II, when mm-hmm. you say post-war. But what the post-war Italian painters were doing with texture at the time, layering paint on canvas and sort of using different kind of materials pushed through canvas or layered on top of it to make it feel textural and feel like it was coming at you, melting plastic, things like that. I can see a connection with that. I also can see that it's possible he just really enjoyed gore. And for others who do enjoy watching him, it feels like you need to find the artistry and that artistic connection to make it feel like a more intellectual experience, which I don't think you need to grab at straws to do. I think if you have an intellectual reaction or feeling about something, it doesn't matter whether or not that's grounded in scholarly study. If it feels that way to you, that's great. And this certainly does feel surrealist to me. Whether it feels like he's trying to sort of capture that grit and that essence of post-war Italy coming out of fascism feeling like everything is being torn apart and rending itself and melting and screaming. I don't know. I think maybe he just likes poking people in the eye and I have (laughs) trouble watching it. Like you say, you can't watch the spider one. I can't watch any of them. I think think it bothers me. It probably makes more sense and probably closer to reality to say that some of those things just kind of happen anyway. Like not consciously, they happen because you are the person you are living in the time you are. You're informed by your experience and the history around you and it's going to happen. And maybe that's just the way he was and the stories he told lent themselves to having that seep through mm-hmm. and you're right there's also that thing of in some respects these movies i think for many people and for many generations of horror fans that grew up like reaching an age where they were hoping oh i hope i can get over to the video store and get this out and you know you're still too young to see it and it's forbidden this idea of seeing a movie that's basically a catalog of atrocities makes sense that some people were drawn to that as let's see what happens in this movie it's not even about the story it's about the violence and and what they accomplish in it. And for people that are also technically minded, it was fascinating to see what the makeup people could do. Like what it's like a special effects reel. Mm -hmm. What is it they're going to accomplish in this movie that hasn't been seen before? Yeah. To a certain extent, there's always going to be a certain draw to seeing something 
that has been labeled by like an entire country's government as too indecent for human consumption. That just guarantees, well, everybody, people have written entire books about that sure. too. And it's like, I think that in some ways these movies were elevated beyond all reason, particularly in the horror community, because they were labeled video nasties. Maybe they wouldn't, some of them wouldn't have become the cult classics they've become if they hadn't been slapped with that label or prosecuted. Because that is going to make people interested in seeing these things. Hard to say. I think, and I haven't seen the entire trilogy of films, so I don't know whether or not it feels like a coherent arc or a connection. Not at all. <laughs> no. Well, then never mind. But we definitely um, should watch City of the Living Dead and uh, House by the Cemetery on, I guess. I guess if we're going to be completist about it, we should get to the other two. House by the Cemetery, I think, is particularly boring, but... But yeah, this this is sort of scenes of graphic gore just uh, spaced out between yeah. bits of plot. With occasional um, Catriona McCall screaming. The spider scene is like five minutes too long. That goes on way too long. Like that in and of itself is what tells me this is not necessarily about creating the piece of performance art and more about the fact that somebody had a thing for watching somebody get very slowly, like very slowly Pulled apart by spiders. Spiders that make an extraordinary amount of noise. And who at one point I said, were they actually wearing like work shoes? Because the sound they're making. And also they have the spiders making the same noise that guinea pigs make when they're happy. Like anyone who's owned a guinea pig knows the, the adorable little like squeak bop thing that they do when they're happy about something. And I'm like, oh, little tarantulas are so happy. They get to eat the man's face. That that part was a bit much for me. But that being said, that the last few minutes of the movie where they're doubling back to the hospital, suddenly you have zombies really in play like in mass, like yeah. in a group kind of moving down the halls. And then you have them go down a stairwell in the hospital. And when they come down the stairs, suddenly they're down the spiral staircase into the basement of the hotel. And it's extraordinary. Like, I, I'm not even sure that the movie, like that the last five minutes of the movie deserve to be in a better movie. Yeah. Because it's, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. And they come down into this basement and like are moving forward. And once you move forward, looking back and realizing it's all around you and there is no return, you can't go back. I kind of got a feel from it, like from um, Silent Hill, mm. that kind of dreamscape world. Like once and obviously Silent Hill, the video game is later and then the movie later still. But that feeling of once you've crossed that bridge into the town, there is no going back to the life you had before. You're sort of trapped in that limbo. It has that same feel to it. And it's extraordinary. And it is bleak. Like, it, it's just... It also, I guess, maybe has a bit of an Omega Man feel. Like, there's like a turning point. Like, every time somebody turns and their eyes change... And they become like someone who has seen the evil. It's like instantaneous. It's like suddenly you're you and then the next minute you're not. You're something else and you have different eyes. I do like that at one point you summed up the movie as Zydeco and Milkshakes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it, they try to get a little bit of like a New Orleans 
flair and flavor into it. Both films actually have scenes where you've got people playing music in, I guess, bars. Yeah. The, the second, the beyond, I'm not even sure it's a bar, but maybe it's just because they were filming in there when the bar was closed in the daytime. Like you see someone sweeping the street outside. Yeah. Like all the revelers from the night before have gone home and it's like 7 a.m. and they're just cleaning everything up. And they're like, yeah, sure, you can come film in the bar. It occurs to me a couple notes that come up about the Lisa character. You had been constantly uh, annoyed by the fact that she keeps using lanterns instead of a flashlight. It's 1981. There's no need for her not to have a flashlight. Gas lamps. Constant gas lamps. But uh, there's also this weird moment, she says, where they're telling her don't enter that room and there are ghosts. And she says she doesn't believe in ghosts. And she said, I've lived in New York all my life. It's like, what the hell does that mean? What is... So living in New York all your life means you don't believe in ghosts? Let me tell you, lady, if there were no ghosts in New York, then what was the point of the Ghostbusters? Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Latofsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLatofsky, that's NBLit of Sky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Skeleton Key, 2005, I, I don't know. And The Beyond, 1981. Ghouls in the House is an ATB Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atbpublishing.com. Thank you, child.